You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. As, as we begin this morning, just how excited I am about our church. Um, I know that we have been through a lot. You don't lose three really critical, dearly loved staff people in the space of a couple of months in a pandemic without having some difficult challenges and, and turbulence and, and, you know, hard times. But I am just so excited about this congregation of people. First of all, you are really well led. I, I, over the last couple of months, I've gotten to know your elders and Man, you did a good job in choosing those guys. God did a good job in choosing those guys. You are, you are well led. They love you. They have served you well. They've poured out their hearts for you during this time. And um, God has protected you through them. And, and so I just want to say a word of gratitude to the elders. Also, um, to your staff. Uh, I know the staff was pretty decimated when, when three really beloved guys, um, for various reasons, had to, had to step out of their roles, but uh, Brett and the team have carried, shouldered a, a huge load, and uh, our gratitude is to them for how they have served during this time. But then also, I want you to, to realize this. You're an extraordinary group of people. You, you really are. God has held you together. The love, the kindness, the grace that you have shown me has just so blessed me and given me a glimpse into the heart of who you are. As I met the elders and I met the staff and then over the last couple of weeks I've had the opportunity to meet various people amongst your church, the one thing that I just keep seeing again and again and again is a love for Jesus and a love for his people. And when you put all of that together, your leadership, your staff, and who you are as a people, Uh, I just know that God has great things ahead for this church family. God is going to find us a new lead pastor. He's going to find us the staff that we need, and he is going to cause this church in the months and the years ahead to have a phenomenal impact on the Niagara Peninsula. So what I want to say as we begin this morning is get ready. Get ready. God is going to use this church for his glory and his honor in some exciting ways moving forward. Let me ask you to pray with me as we begin. Father God, as we turn our attention now to your word, I pray that you would do what only you can do. I pray that you would illuminate our minds, open our hearts to receive the living word of God. Lord, you know that before we were saved, before you um, quickened us, this word made no sense. It was confusing. It was bewildering. It just didn't really have any relevance in our lives. Today, it's the foundation upon which we build our entire beings. And Lord, you have made that change. And so I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit's grace, that we would see clearly what you have said in your word, and that we would humble ourselves before it, that we would embrace it, and Lord, that it would change us, that we would leave this place this morning transformed by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin by asking you this question. If someone was to ask you about your conversion experience, how would you answer that question? Somebody comes up to you and says, tell me about how you met Jesus and what happened to cause you to become a follower of Christ. How would you respond? From my experience, generally, people respond this way. They'll say something like, well, I heard the gospel and I believed, or I heard the gospel and I opened my heart to receive the Lord, or I heard the message of Christ and I accepted Jesus into my heart, or I heard the message of the gospel and I prayed the prayer and received Jesus, or I heard the gospel and I made a decision for Christ. Now, when we talk that way, we're not saying anything incorrect or wrong, but I want you to think about the verbs that we use when we, when we speak about our conversion from that perspective. Just listen to some of the verbs. I chose, I accepted, I opened, I prayed, I made a decision, I believed. And the emphasis oftentimes is on what we do, on the choices, the decisions, the actions, the verbs that we use to describe what we do 
are often focused on ourselves. Now, the passage that Brett read for us is, is radically different. So if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, tell me, Paul, about your conversion. What happened on the road to Damascus? What, what transpired that day when you were so radically transformed by the Spirit of God? <clears throat> I would suggest this, that the Apostle Paul would probably say something like this. Well, I was dead in my sin. I was absolutely dead to the life of God. I hated God. I hated his people. I hated everything that there was to do with him. But God, because he is so rich in mercy and because he loves me so much, when I was dead in my sin, made me alive. He quickened me. He brought me to life. He transformed me. He caused me to be born again to a living hope. Paul would probably go on and say something like this, but, and he raised me up and seated me with him in heavenly places. By grace I have been saved through faith, and that is not of myself, it is all of God. So I have nothing to boast in, nothing at all. And beyond that, I am now his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and he is working on me and changing me and transforming me and shaping me and sculpting me and making me a man that I would never otherwise have become were it not for his grace. Do you see the difference in emphasis? One generally focuses on, I made a decision. One, the other, the Apostle Paul, focuses on, on God. But God made me alive. Why is that Paul's focus? I think three reasons. First of all, it's true. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Everything else from beginning to end is all of God. Secondly, it brings him glory. We learned that in the first few verses of chapter one. It's to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul says that essentially three times. God saves us to glorify himself. But then thirdly, and I think this is the important one that I want you to think about with me this morning, it is to produce gratitude, produce a sense of thanksgiving in our souls. The qualities of gratitude, thankfulness, and love are the engine that drive the Christian. It's not guilt, it's not ought, it's not law, it's not should, it's love, thankfulness, and grace. It is the understanding of what God has done for us in Christ that animates the Christian life. It has to be that way. It's the understanding of what God has done for us in Christ that animates the Christian life, that gives us the impetus to go forward as Christians. <clears throat> the gospel, what Jesus has done for us in salvation, energizes us, it's catalytic, it motivates us, it pushes us forward. That is the engine that drives us in our Christian journey. So how we view our salvation, the perspective that we have regarding salvation is critically important. We can have two perspectives on this. We've, we can view our conversion, our view of conversion can either be true give him glory and create within us gratitude or we can have a skewed misunderstanding of salvation. We can still be saved but not understand it the way the Apostle Paul expresses it in this passage of Scripture. <clears throat> and as a consequence, we have a false or a twisted or an incomplete view of salvation that limits the glory that God gets and lessens our thankfulness. This morning, what I hope happens is that we understand what God has done for us in, us in Christ, that we understand the gospel, particularly as it relates to our conversion, the way Paul lays it out in this passage. Let me give you an illustration of how we can misunderstand the process of conversion and so rob God of his glory and, <clears throat> and reduce the gratitude that we would have for our salvation. Very famous verse, Revelation 3.23. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. 
A lot of people use that passage of scripture to describe the salvation process. We have Jesus standing at our heart's door and he's knocking. And if you've seen the picture, you'll see Jesus in a garden generally. And there's a picture and there's a door, but there's no door handle. And there we have Jesus knocking, trying to get in, asking us to open the door. But he can't get in because we don't open the door. Or we won't open the door. Or his will is somehow subject to our will. So I heard a preacher saying a while ago, the only thing that's stronger than the will of God is our will, which is anathema. The reality is that passage of scripture was never intended to describe salvation. It's taken from Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, which was a lukewarm, dispassionate, cold, indifferent group of Christians. And the apostle is writing to them saying, look, Jesus loves you. And he wants to come in and fellowship with you. He wants a deeper, more intimate relationship with you. So respond to him. Open your heart to him again as you did once. This is not a picture of salvation. But what we do when we misunderstand the conversion experience and we see it through this lens is we diminish God, we rob him of his glory, and we elevate ourselves Well, my salvation was because I was smart enough to open the door. Yeah, Jesus did a lot, but I was smart enough to open the door. I was spiritual enough, or I made a decision, and therefore I deserve a bit of a pat in the back. Do you see how it's possible to diminish God's, a wrong view of conversion diminishes the glory of God and elevates our position. And as a consequence of elevating our position, we diminish the emotion of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise and worship and love. What Paul is saying in this passage of scripture is that before he became a Christian, before we became Christians, we were dead. We were spiritually dead. Dead people can't answer doors. So if you came to my house in Georgetown early tomorrow morning and Cindy for some reason was asleep and I had had a heart attack and I'm lying there dead. Actually, you can't be there because you'd probably wake up. So you're not there for some reason. Anyways, you come to my house tomorrow morning. I have a heart attack in the middle of the night tonight. And I'm dead. And you're banging on the door. And you're yelling, Paul, let me in. Am I going to respond to you? Is there going to be anything, any capacity, any ability for me to get out of bed and come down and answer the door? The answer is no. Why? Because I'm dead. Dead people don't answer doors. And that's where Paul has us right at the beginning of this passage of Scripture. In this passage, Paul is describing what God does to save us. In this passage of Scripture, we have the most detailed, descriptive understanding, explanation of the journey of salvation, the journey of conversion, what God does to save a soul. It describes what God does for us, to us, at conversion, when he regenerates us and his subsequent work in our salvation. And there are four acts to this drama, and I want us to understand these acts. Why? Because when we really, really, truly understand them, he gets the glory, and we become thankful. More and more and more thankful. That's why the study of the gospel, that's why the study of what God has done for us in Christ must be the study of our lives. The more we delve into it, the deeper we go in it, the more we dig, the more we understand, the more we appreciate it, the more and more and more gratitude that we feel, the more and more love that we feel, and the more and more desire that we have to follow him faithfully. So we need to understand this. This These four acts parallel the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to understand this before we begin. The four things that Paul is going to describe as happening to us are exactly what happened to Jesus at his resurrection. And Paul wants us to make that connection because of what we read in verses 19, 20, and 21. Let me just show you that. Verse chapter 1, 19, 20, and 21. He's praying for the Ephesians, and he's asking God that God would show them, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is to be named. Now go down to verse 6 of the passage that we're looking at today. And this is where Paul is talking about us, what God does for us. He says, and God raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see that? What happened to Jesus, chapter 1, verse 20, is what happens to us, chapter 2, verse 6. And, and we need to make that connection. Because in a very, very real sense, your conversion is exactly the same as what happened at Jesus' resurrection. When you were born again, it was an Easter Sunday. When you were born again, as we sang this morning, you walked out of that grave by grace. And we need to get it. We need to understand it. Folks, if I can say respectfully, we need to stop talking about me in terms of my salvation. Yes, we believe and we follow Jesus and we repent and we're baptized and we have a part to play in it. But it's about God. It's his story. It's his glory that we need to magnify in this. So, the process that, when Jesus, that Jesus went through to come out of that tomb is the same journey that we take in our conversion. So let's examine these four acts in the drama of salvation. The first is this. We were dead. Now, in chapter 1, Paul begins by talking to us about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation, the glory of God in salvation, the glory of the Spirit of God in salvation. He talks about what God has done in salvation. He talks about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. The work of the Father before time, the work of the Son in time, and the work of the Spirit in time and after time. It's all about him. And if you go through there and look at the pronouns, like he or him or whatever, you see it over and over and over and over and over again. It's all a focus on God. And that's because Paul wants us to understand that it's all about his glorious grace. And then we prayed the, pas the passage that Pastor Brett so wonderfully preached on last Sunday. And now he comes to talking about us. And how does he begin? Well, you were dead. You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Metaphorically, spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We weren't neutral. We were dead. We were impervious to the gospel. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were before Jesus intersected our lives. The Apostle Paul knew that. When he was sharing his testimony, he would think about the Damascus Road. He would think about what was in his heart, the hatred, the hatred towards Christ, the hatred towards his people. The lack of understanding, the spiritual blindness, the inability to understand the gospel. And then suddenly, when he was dead, God resuscitated him. And this is our pre-conversion plight. We have a sinful nature, had a sinful nature, inherited from Adam that damned us to spiritual death. It enslaved us and it killed us. Sin killed within us any desire for God. So I want you to read with me a few verses. So first of all, go to uh, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and let's look at how Paul describes us before we come to faith. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse, um, verse 10. Listen to how he describes the non-Christian. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Like if you really believed that, it would impact powerfully how we do evangelism. No one seeks for God. They have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Flip over to Romans chapter 8 for a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. 
Actually, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, those who are unregenerate, those who are not converted, cannot please God. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person, Paul says, so the person who is not yet converted, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Jesus in John chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. That's who we are because of sin. That was what happened as a consequence of being born a child of Adam. We're dead in our sins. So you would not be saved were it not for God's intervention in your life. You would not love Jesus. You would not be here. You could not believe that the Bible is the word of God. You would not ever have recognized that you had sinned against a holy God. You would never have repented. You would never have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ had it not been for the quickening effect of the Spirit of God in your life. Sin had blinded you. He had given you a settled anti-God disposition. You were at enmity with him. Your will, your nature was dead because of sin. But God rescued you. God rescued you. See, the analogy is not, I was out in this raging sea and God sailed by in his ship and threw me a life raft and I swam to the life raft and climbed into it and he pulled me aboard. That's not the analogy that Paul is using to describe spiritual regeneration. What happened is that you were face down in the mud at the bottom of the ocean, dead. And God sent his son into your plight and he went down there and he got you and he turned you over and he resuscitated you by grace and brought you to the surface, and you became alive, and you looked around and you go, man, I'm alive. I was dead, hopeless, lost, on my way to hell and loving it. And he saved me. That's a big deal. He resuscitated you. It wasn't your intelligence or your spiritual inclination, or your decision to seek him, or to try to fill that void in your heart. It was him. So before we go on, let me say two things that I think are important to understand. One, everybody that we witness to is in that situation. Everybody in our society who doesn't know Jesus is dead. And so our response to them must be compassion. Think about Jesus. He gets to the end of his ministries, Matthew 23, the last couple of verses of that passage. Before He knows he's going to the cross. He knows that these people who he's preached to, he's the divine son of the living God. He is the one that the prophets had spoken about. He is the one who came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. He was the one who could have destroyed them with a word. And he weeps. And he says, how I would long to have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. His heart was broken for lost people. It's so easy for us to look at political figures or people who make stupid decisions or, or people who do wrong things and be angry with them. Folks, there but for the grace of God go I. What they need is our love, not our judgment. What they need is our compassion and our mercy and our grace. The same exact thing that God gave to us in Christ. When we were dead, they're dead. But secondly, God is in the business of resuscitating dead people. You wouldn't be here if he wasn't in the business of resuscitating dead people. I wouldn't be here if God wasn't in the business of going down to the bottom of the ocean. There I am, dead my lungs clogged with mud, and he recreates me, and he breathes life into me and makes me new. There but for the grace of God go all of us. 
God is in the business of recreating people, of resuscitating people. How does he do it? He uses prayer. He uses the preaching of the gospel. He uses his word. He uses acts of love and mercy and kindness and grace. He uses street evangelism. He uses us to use the means of grace to quicken dead people. Because that brings them glory. That brings them glory. God is going to use us, as he has used this church in the past, he's going to use it in the future. He's going to use us to bring him glory by using us to quicken dead people. And I'm excited about that. But secondly, God makes us alive together with Christ. I, I, I want to read for you. Well, if I go back to Ephesians, I'll be able to do it. <laughs> I want to read this passage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here are the two most wonderful verses, words in this passage. But God. But God. But God. It's God who must act, as I've said. And unless he acts, no one can be saved. That's why we can't begin with I. You know, if you read that thing again, and you get to the end, we're all children of wrath, and you go, but I made a decision. I went to a crusade. I saw a television evangelist and prayed a prayer. It's God. It's God. And he must get the glory in your salvation. Think about yourself. You're in a funeral home, and you're in a casket. And I come in, and I, I preach the word, and I pray. And I pushed you. You don't move. But then God comes in. And he just says the word. And you sit up. And you're alive. Yes, God's used the word and he's used prayer and he's used all those other things, but it's God. But God. Without him, salvation doesn't happen. It's impossible. Because he does this because he is rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. Like Paul can't emphasize this enough. You see that? Verse 5. Even when we were dead. He made us alive together with Christ. So again our stories parallel the story of Jesus. In some senses. Jesus was in a tomb. He was in his casket essentially. And he was put there because of sin. Our sin. And he would have stayed there because of sin had it not been for the intervention of God himself who spoke the word and resurrected his son from the dead. And he walked out of that tomb alive forevermore, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the king of the universe, as we sang this morning. But like him, we are, we're in a tomb. Sin had killed us. And as God raised Jesus from the dead, he raises us from the dead. And he makes us alive. Folks, your conversion was as miraculous and as wonderful as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you didn't hear a street evangelist and decide to believe and pray a prayer and start coming to this church. That's not your conversion. Those may be events in the story that brought you to faith. But your conversion is that you were dead. But God, because of the love that he had for you and his grace, quickened you the way he quickened his son. And you walked out of that tomb alive forevermore. You see, that's the gospel. Salvation, your salvation is a resurrection. In your flesh, you wouldn't have wanted it. You didn't know you needed it. 
And yet God in his mercy raised you to life. He did for you what he did for the first Adam and for the second Adam. The first Adam, he created, Genesis, very beginning, he created man out of the dust of the earth. And there he was, dead, fully formed, lifeless. And what does the scripture say? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Jesus was in the tomb, dead, the second Adam. And he would have stayed dead because of our sin. But God raised him from the dead, breathed life into him. And that's exactly what he did for you. Like, does that create something in your soul? That the living God of all the universe loved you so much that he chose you, that he sent his son, and that his spirit in time and space breathed life into your death. And today you know him. You call him father. You call Jesus brother. You have an eternal hope. You're alive to truth that other people can't see and don't understand because he resurrected you. It's a wonderful truth. And it's all of grace. And this properly understood produces changed lives. So I want to say this right in sort of the middle of my message. If you're struggling with sin, if you're wrestling to live the Christian life, if it's a chore, if it's not easy, I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, but you know what I mean, that you're just living under this burden of sin and disobedience is more characteristic of you than obedience. Can I say with all respect Quit focusing on your sin and focus on the gospel. Think about, what, think about what Jesus has done for you, in you, who he has made you, the transformation that the gospel is. Learn to love the gospel. Learn to revel in it. Let it be the first thought that you think in the morning. When you are tempted by sin, don't think about pulling up your socks and struggling with the sin. Think about the gospel. Think about Jesus. Think about what he has done for you. Think about where you were in that casket. And think about who you are now. And that will change you. That'll give you a heart of thanksgiving and praise and worship and gratitude. That will enable you progressively to overcome sin. We so fixate on sin and neglect the gospel. Grace, not guilt, is the key to change. Understanding grace, not laboring under guilt, is the key to change. Thirdly, God raises us up with Christ. Note the phrase, with Christ. Look, look at verses 6 and 7. <clears throat> By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. With Christ, with Christ, what happened to Christ happened to us. Christ was dead, he was resurrected, he was ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. He is seated today in heavenly places. And Paul says, that's what our salvation has done for us. When we were converted, we went from death to life. We were dead, we were raised, and now we are seated with him in heavenly places, in Christ, with Christ. Now, clearly, we're not in heaven. We're in, in church. It's, it's Sunday morning. Right? We're not, if this is heaven, you're kind of saying to yourself, oh boy. <laughs> We're not in heaven. But when Paul says he's seated with us in heavenly places and he's raised us up with him, what does it mean? Well, sometimes the apostle speaks about future realities as present fact. He does this in, in Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And it's using a particular tense there to kind of make us think of it as a, an already established fact. Now, we're not glorified. We're not seated with him in the heavenly places yet. 
But that particular tense that he uses there is used to help us understand a reality that is based on previous realities. So because we were foreknown by God and predestined and called and justified, because those things are all true, we will be glorified. And because we were dead and have been made alive, Paul can speak of us as being seated in the heavenly places as a present reality, although it hasn't fully materialized yet. We haven't fully experienced it yet. But regardless of that, we are still, as Paul says in Colossians chapter, and if you flip over to Colossians, just a couple of books to the right, Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 and following, Paul says to us that in reality we are seated with Christ. And this is the implication. If then you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. For we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what he is saying in this passage of scripture is that we are going to spend all eternity with God. We are going to spend eternity in his presence. We are, we are so bound for heaven that nothing can stop that. Having been dead, being made alive, being raised up with Christ guarantees that we'll be in his presence. And what is that going to look like? Well, look at verse, look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? In heaven, God is going to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace to all of creation for all time by being kind to us. Like, think about that. This is what it means to have been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. This is our confident hope. This is our assurance that for all eternity, God is going to be demonstrating the magnificence and the glory and the wonder and the amazing nature of his grace by being ever increasingly kind to us. Like, that should just blow your mind. That's what heaven is. That is the hope of heaven. That God, who is so jealous for his glory, is going to demonstrate it to all of creation throughout all of history, all of, all of eternity, I should say, by pouring upon us ever-increasing kindness. I can't fathom that. That's why Paul says, No eye has seen, ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him because all that heaven is going to be is ever increasingly God dumping his love and his kindness and his grace and his mercy upon us. So if that's true, if that's true, we in conversion have a profound perspective transformation. We, we are changed from a, an earthly focus to a heavenly focus. From a temporal point of view to a, an eternal point of view. That's the way it happens. It just naturally transforms us. Our perspective is changed. Although we're not in heaven yet, we live as if we are. That's the point. Although we're not in glory, we live as if we are glorified. Although we are not home yet, we invest there. And that is one of the things that inevitably happens to everyone who is truly saved. Our focus ceases to be this world and the priorities of this world and the pleasures of this world and the accoutrements of this world and all the things that we can gather in this world and our life begins to be about investing in glory. You see, our perspective is so changed. He raises us up. We're not in glory, but he raises us up to see glory. And when we see it, when we understand it, when we understand that God is going to spend eternity pouring his grace and love into our lives to show the world, to show eternity, to show the angels how amazing he is, it becomes enthralling. We begin to live for that day. We begin to live a new morality, new values, new passions, new desires, new loyalties, new purpose, new meaning, new goals. 
And it's all rooted in the fact that one day we are going to be with Jesus. So in a genuine conversion, our focus is changed from the baubles and the trinkets and the worthlessness of this world, and we begin to look up, and it changes how we see life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. We're able to deal with the challenges and the difficulties of life. Why? As Paul says in that same, generally the same passage in 2 Corinthians We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, your conversion genuinely changes your perspective. You were dead, you're made alive, and now you see. Now you can see what you couldn't see before. And it changes everything you do. It changes how you live your life, how you run your business, how you relate to your spouse, how you raise your children, what you do with your money, what you do with your time. It changes everything because glory is our destiny. How do you know you're converted? How do you know that you genuinely are saved? Well, this world and the allure of this world begins to disappear. The things, remember the old hymn, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what I'm talking about here. And then fourthly, it says we become God's workmanship. So it, it, and it, sort of like verse eight is really interesting. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not out of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one has anything to boast in. It's almost like he's just reminding us here. He's just saying, in case you don't get it, in case everything I've said in the first seven verses hasn't made sense, let me summarize it for you. It's grace. It's all God. It's his love. It's his mercy. It's his goodness. It's him. It's Jesus. It's not you. You didn't do anything. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. It's him. You were saved by grace through faith. And that is not of yourself. Faith is a gift of God. So you get nothing to boast in. That's why he says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Right? What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. I received it all. So all the glory goes to him. I don't boast about anything. And then he goes on. And this is where, and I think he sort of says that to help us understand this next verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So fourthly, when God saves us, the fourth act in this drama is that we become his workmanship. So he is the sculptor, we're the big lump of stone. He is the carver, we are that unshaped hunk of wood. To use a biblical metaphor, he is the potter and we are the clay. And he begins transforming us. From the moment that we get saved, we were dead, he resurrects us, he seats us in heaven places and gives us a new perspective on life, and then he begins a process. And that's why salvation was something that is past, present, and future in the Bible. He begins a process now in time when he starts sticking his fingers in and molding and shaping the clay. That can be a painful process. Hebrews 12 talks about discipline, how God disciplines those he loves and shapes us and changes us and grows us and molds us into the image of Christ. But we are his workmanship. That's why Paul was able to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, really famous verse, I'm convinced that he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it or will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, those whom God saves, he sanctifies. Those whom God quickens, he transforms. Don't ever believe that you can be a believer, genuinely converted Christian, and not be in the process of transformation. Because that's the fourth act in the drama. Now, we're not saved by good works. We know that, right? But we're saved for good works. God saves us in order that we would do those things that he has called us to. We're saved for good works, acts of love, forgiveness, using our gifts to serve the church. These qualities of selflessness and sacrifice begin to characterize those people who are genuinely saved. 
And this might be a good spot for me actually just to echo what Brett said right at the beginning. We need people to serve in our children's ministry. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you've got gifts in that area or an inclination to serve in that area, but folks, we need help. I think we need 15 people per week over the next number of while, weeks to open Harvest Kids Ministry. Let me, just, let me just put it out there. Would you be willing to serve? Would you be willing to help love these kids? It's important. Because when we're saved, we begin to look for ways to serve. That's what God does. When, when he, is, he is the workman. He is the potter. We are the clay. He begins to change us and shape us and mold us. And one of the things that happens to us is that we begin to look for ways to serve, to love, to bless, to care for others. Self is diminished. Service and love and ministry, others become a hallmark in our lives because that's what God does in us. That's who Christians are. That's what conversion does. He changes us. I want to finish up this morning by going to Philippians. So if you are in Ephesians, just flip over to the next book. Philippians 2. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation for, with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will, give you the will, and the ability to do his good pleasure. That little phrase, work out there, work out doesn't mean work at. <laughs> doesn't mean work at. It just, don't think of it that way. Work out is, is, a, is, a, is a word that means do that which naturally results from. Do that which naturally results from. Work out, do that which naturally results from your salvation. Understanding your conversion, understanding what God has done for you should lead you to do that which naturally flows. Having been saved by grace... Work out your salvation. Do what naturally flows. And what naturally flows is service. What naturally flows is love. What naturally flows is gratitude. What naturally flows is a heart that's just filled with thanksgiving for the grace of God in Christ. What naturally flows is a man or a woman who sees others as more important than themselves, who's willing to serve and bless and forgive, who's willing to give grace and love and, and, and mercy to others. A transformed life. Work out your salvation simply means get it, understand it, plumb the depths of it, know it. Let it become the song of your heart. Let it be the thought that you have before you go to bed at night. Let it be the thought that you have when you wake up in the morning that you are a deeply loved child of God purchased by the blood of Jesus. That when you were dead, he came into this world. When you hated him, he loved you. That he went to the cross, that he bled and died in your place so that you could be redeemed and have eternal life. So that the spirit of God in time and space could intersect your life as he intersected the Apostle Paul's. When you didn't care about him, when you were cursing him and living vilely under the, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, when you were a child of wrath, he breathed life into you. And he made you alive. And he seated you in heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he might spend all eternity showing how wonderful his grace is by pouring love and kindness into your life. Like that, let that sink in. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to receive it. It was just God's mercy. And that, let that change you. Let that so radically grip your soul that you make choices based on that. Remember the story of John Newton? I think you all do. He was a slave trader. He was a rapist. Undoubtedly, he had participated in the deaths of some people on his slave ships. He was a blasphemer. He hated God. He wanted nothing to do with the church. 
And in a storm-tossed North Atlantic one night, God radically saved him. And this is what he said near the end of his life. He says, I'm not the man I ought to be, and I'm not the man I want to be, and I'm not the man that I hope to be, but still, I'm not the man that I once used to be. For by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's not insignificant that he was the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing grace. Folks, let that be the focus of your life. The amazing grace of God in Christ. When you were dead, when you were dead, he made you alive. And he raised you up and seated you in heavenly places. He gave you a new perspective that is guaranteed. He's showing you the pictures from the top of the mountain. You're not there yet, but live as if you're going to get there. And today he's working in your life, transforming and shaping you. Let that truth, let it so grip you that it shapes how you live your life. And let me just finish by saying this. You may be here this morning and you're one of those people who say, well, I I prayed a prayer. I signed the back of my Gideon Bible back in grade six, 50 years ago. But down in your heart, you know that you're not saved. You know that you've never come into a living, transformational relationship with Jesus Christ because you still love darkness rather than light. You're on the throne of your life, and you know it. Your theology is good, but you've never genuinely been converted. So let me just say this. Reject the verbs. Reject I. Reject the decision. Reject all of that. And just simply turn to Jesus And throw yourself on his mercy. Believe in him and you will be saved and radically changed. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for what you have done in our lives to save us. You have converted us when we were dead in rebellion against you with a heart disposition that didn't want anything to do with you, loving sin more than righteousness, you intervened in our plight and you woke us up, you quickened us, you raised us from the dead and then you raised us up with yourself and seated us in heavenly places so that in the ages to come you might demonstrate the glory and the magnificence of your grace by lavishing upon us your kindness. And now you're working in our lives and you're changing us. Father, I want to pray for each man and woman here who is struggling with sin, with selfishness, with pride, with lust, with pornography, alcoholism, all of those things that so easily entangle our lives. Lord, help us get our focus on you. Help us get our focus on the gospel. Help us fall in love with what you've done for us and be so amazed by grace. Like John Newton, we're able to say, I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I want to be. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You're changing us, Lord. Continue that work for your glory's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.